Thank you that we could be called your children, that we could come boldly before you, thanking you for your love and your patience with each one of us. So, Father, today as I present your word, I pray to give me the clarity that your flock here at Pleasant Ridge needs. And just want to thank you once again just for being involved in each one of our lives. Amen. It had to be the celebration of all celebrations. We saw a small glimpse of this back in the late 1980s, early 90s, when the Iron Curtain fell, when the Soviet Union dissolved, and 15 countries were granted their freedom. 15 countries like East Germany, Russia, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, Tajikistan, and many others were finally free to choose their own elected officials, their type of government, and their type of economy without Russia's interference. But the celebration, if you saw that, I sat enthralled probably for hours as I watched the Iron Curtain come down, the Berlin Wall fall, and many people were celebrating freedom. But that celebration is nothing compared to what we have in Exodus 14. The children of Israel were enslaved to Egypt 400 years. 400 years! That goes back to when King James was uh, authorized, the, our version, in 1611. When the English settled Jamestown in 1620. 400 years! The children of Israel were born into slavery, and they died in slavery. That is all they knew. But God intervened through the miraculous plagues. And finally the Egyptians said, we've had enough. And they were giving the children of Israel money and possessions, saying, just get out of here, the sooner the better. They're on their way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now if you're to entice me of a promised land, it wouldn't be milk and honey. It would be Dairy Queen milkshakes. A&W root beer floats, McDonald fries, and Reuben sandwiches. That's the promised land. But probably most of those did not exist back there, so they settled for milk and honey. You can imagine the jubilation, the singing, the rejoicing as they left. They were probably shouting, God is good. And finally, they could talk about a hope, a future because they were heading there. We too were once slaves. We were slaves to a dictator, a tyrant, worse than Pharaoh, worse than Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Joseph Stalin, Mao Tse Sung, and all the other dictators that have risen. For our tyrant, our master was Satan, the master of lies, the father of all deceit. Jesus calls him a murderer. And we had no hope. We had absolutely no hope of ever redeeming, of ever being redeemed. The gulf, the chasm was so large between the us and God that there's nothing that could have bridged it. 2,000 years ago, God had mercy on our souls and sent Jesus Christ to come and die for our sins. And it's when I accept that gift and realize that there's nothing that I can do to earn my salvation, and I accept that gift of Jesus Christ 
The Bible says that I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm a new creation. But we sure do try to earn our salvation. What would happen if I was to write a check and didn't have enough money in the bank? It would come back insufficient funds. But we do that with our works. We try to earn our salvation. We say, what happens if I go to church every Sunday? What happens if I don't miss a, a service? Surely that is good enough for my salvation. So we present that to God, and it comes back insufficient works. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll tithe. I won't tithe 10%. I will tithe 11%. Surely that must be good enough to earn my salvation. And it comes back insufficient funds, insufficient works. What would happen if I got baptized? I got baptized by being immersed, sprinkled, poured. Every Sunday I did that. Surely that ought to be good enough for my salvation. And it comes back insufficient works. I can make a, a list of a mile long, write it in every language the world has ever known to list all my works, and it will come back insufficient works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that we are saved by faith, not, uh, not of ourselves, not of works. There's nothing that you and I can do, ever will do, to earn our salvation. We're strictly at the mercy of God, and when we accept his gift, the Bible says that we are saved. There's a song that we sing, written by a glidden man. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life, my debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. We come now to our text. This is kind of the history. Ephesians, I mean, um, Exodus 14, 1 through 14. I'm going to read a couple of verses, then expound on, on the verses as we go along. Ephes, um, Exodus 14, 1 through 14. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 now. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they, that they turn and camp before me at Pirahiroth between Midol and the sea, opposite Baal Zaphron. You shall camp before it by the sea. Hard names. I like Carol and Manning and Jefferson better than, than these. Um, the children of Israel were freed, and they're on their way to the promised land. And the Bible says they came to a particular place. And God said, not only stop, but turn back and camp. Now you can imagine the confusion. We're on our way to the promised land. You kind of see it in the picture behind me. We're going to the promised land, and you tell me to turn around, completely around, and camp? How in the world are we going to get there? How can we get there to the promised land? As you can see in the picture, there's mountains and wilderness and the sea. So they're kind of in this canyon-like, and God says, camp. Since they had no idea where they were going, they stayed. But you can imagine the impatience, the confusion. Now what do we do? We have to sit and wait. We're not getting to the promised land. God, hurry up. But they had to sit and wait 
at Pyahiroth. Oftentimes in our journeys in life, we have to sit and wait. We have no idea what's happening. What do we do? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, God tells the children of Israel, and it's also to us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are high, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But God is telling each one of us that my ways, my thoughts are so much superior to, to each one of us that there's absolutely no comparison. What would happen if your child, after you trying to teach them what one plus one was, all of a sudden said two? And you would rejoice. My, my son, my daughter has learned the elementary part of math. One plus one equals two. But what would happen if you showed this child this problem right up here? Don't try to solve it because you can't. That's unsolvable. But what I'm getting at is the comparison between one plus one and this right here. And multiply that a million, trillion, billion times. And that is how much more superior God's wisdom is to our wisdom. In 1 Corinthians, it says, our wisdom is foolishness compared to God. There's absolutely no comparison. What we comprehend is one plus one. What God comprehends is this. And we, we, we can't even, we can't bridge it. And so when we come through these places in life, and there's more questions than answers, we need to be able to trust God that he has our best interests in mind, and that he will move according to his timetable and not ours. What should our attitude be when we're in this limbo? The children of Israel did not do anything wrong. There's no record yet of them grumbling and complaining. They've gone quite a while because usually page after page in the Old Testament is them grumbling and God dealing with them. This particular situation, there's nothing that they did wrong, but still God said to sit and wait. So what should our attitude be while we're sitting and waiting? Psalms 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way or the man who carries out evil devices. Wait patiently. Just so we know what patiently means, it means with calmness and without complaint or hurry in spite of delays. With calmness and without complaint or hurry in spite of delays. That is our attitude. We should wait patiently. Now a lot of times we have to wait, it's beyond our control. But to wait patiently, that is up to us. When we come against these places that don't make sense. We have a lot of questions. We're to wait patiently for the Lord to interact. And sometimes God may intervene miraculously, instantaneously. And other times it may take years and years and years. But no matter how long it takes, you and I are to wait and wait patiently. We see some examples in the Bible of this. We see Simeon. He was told in Luke, the second chapter, that he will not see death until he sees the Christ. And how long he had to wait, I don't know. 
This Christ was the hope of all Israel. They, that was on their, their minds, their dreams. Maybe our Savior, maybe the Christ is coming. And Simeon was told, you will not die until you see the Christ. In the upper room, the disciples were told to wait not many days for the Holy Spirit. Now, what's not many days? Is it one day? Is it four days? Is it ten days? Who knows? But they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. In Acts, the eighth chapter, we see the story of Philip. He was in a revival in Samaria. And the angel said, go to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. That's it. He wasn't told why. He wasn't told where to stop. Go. It was 47 miles of wilderness. It was dangerous. And the angel said, go. And you'll, that's all he said. And so Philip went, and then when he went down there, he met the Ethiopian treasure. But he probably had to wait, because he had no idea what was happening. So the times that you and I have to wait, God says, wait patiently. Verses 3 and 4. And God gives a reason. Oftentimes, God does not give us reasons. But in this particular time, he gave a reason why they had to camp at Piahiroth. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are between the wilderness and the land. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all the army. The Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. God gives a reason. He's saying, I'm having you camp. I'm having you turn back and camping. And this is the reason that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So that I will get the glory and people will know that I am the Lord. As I was preparing this sermon, I thought, maybe this is the reason, the foundation for everything that God allows in our lives. That he may get the glory and that people may know that he is the Lord. Would that change your situation at all? Because if you're like me, when you're in a crisis, it's all about me. Look, it's, look what happened to me. How can I get out of this? But maybe everything that happens to you and me in our lives as God's children is that God may get the glory and that people may know that he is the Lord. So maybe my trials for that reason. Maybe God is refining me so that, so that people may know that he is the Lord through my actions. So they're waiting. That's hard. But here comes disaster. Here comes trouble. In verses 5 through 12, we see this. Pharaoh decides to chase the children of Israel. He realized the mistake that he made. He made two mistakes. First of all, he let his free labor go. But secondly, he realized that he now appears weak. And the worst thing a dictator wants to do is to appear weak to his enemies, to his people. So he had to correct his mistake, and he had to chase down the children of Israel. He had to make right a mistake that he made. It says that he decided to attack with 600 chariots, 600 of his best horsemen. 
And then it says, and all the rest of the chariots chased the children of Israel. And if you remember the picture that I showed, they're in camp. They have mountains, they have the wilderness, they have the sea. And the only way of escape, now Pharaoh comes and blocks them. And there is absolutely no way the children of Israel can escape. But God had the children of Israel right where he wanted them. Now, I'm sure they would have disagreed. I'm sure if they looked around and saw themselves hemmed in, they would say, God, you've abandoned us. You've played a dirty trick on us. You led us out of Egypt, led us down here, and now we're going to die. Or maybe some people may say, God, you're a poor strategist. Why, why would you lead us to this place, this canyon, where there's no escape? But you know, God could have annihilated the Egyptians before they got here. He could have annihilated them from the time they left till they got right here. But this is specifically the situation that he wanted. He wanted his children at Paya Hiroth, and he wanted to show his glory and advance his kingdom to not only the Egyptians, but to show his children that he is the Lord. As we could all witness to, Hardships are part of the Christian walk. Both because of our human nature, but also because of we, because the Christians. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, that's been granted to him not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. We like the first part. We like the part of believing. But it's also saying, but also been granted to us the opportunity, the privilege to suffer for his sake. And why do we act so surprised? Why do we act so surprised when all these hardships come? We, we look at them like they don't belong. Yes, they do, because we're part of the human race, and Jesus promised that his followers will suffer hardships. In the Phillips translation, in James, the first chapter, it says that we're to view these hardships as friends and not intruders. These hardships that come into our lives, to be, they're to be viewed as friends and not intruders. When a friend comes over, you invite them in to your house. But when an intruder comes, the intruder is leaving. But how often we get this mixed up? We don't see these trials, these hardships as friends we see them as intruders, and we do whatever we can to get them out of our lives. When all the time God is saying, this is for your good, view them as friends. Because what's happening is when you and I view them as intruders and not friends as God does, God can question us and say, do you know more than I do? I say they're your friends, accept them, learn, and you're treating them as intruders. It says in Job 38, can you instruct God? Can you give God instructions? Can you correct God? What happens if Bill Gates of Microsoft, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Bezos of um, Amazon, and Michael Jordan were all here? all multi-billionaires. And I'd come to their conference, me, who's never balanced a checkbook in his life, 
come to their conference, what would my attitude be? I wouldn't say a word. I'd be in awe. I would say, what do I know to even contribute to what you guys are talking about? You're multi-billionaires. How much more with us? How much more with us? God's ways are superior. And the audacity of me to question God, to say, it does, it, God, it, you're, you're, you're wrong. But yet, this hardships that we encounter. In other countries, it's expected. When, when you become a Christian, you know also hardships will be coming. You expect it. Bill Platt, in his book, The Radical, tells a story of when he went down to Indonesia and spoke at a seminary. In this seminary, in order to get your, your degree, you had to go out and plant a church in an area where there are no Christian churches, and you had to have 30 baptized believers before you could come back and earn your degree. Wow. When, when I got my degree in Christian ministries... I had to follow the pastor around. We talked about the church history. I had to visit some people and preach one sermon. And then I was able to get my degree. But these people in Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country, cannot get their degree until they plant a church of 30 baptized believers. Not 30 people who attend, but 30 people who are baptized. And Bill Platt tells a story if we went down there there was two chairs that were empty two of the men in pursuing this degree lost their lives these these men knew there was a, a cost back in the 1950s a russian pastor was brought in and they were told by the authorities you've been warned many times to quit your preaching and we warned you we have ways to to make you be quiet and they brought his 85-year-old mom in. 85, that's the age of what my mom is. And they said, we're going we're to torture her and persecute her to death right in front of you. The pastor knew that when he became a Christian, this could happen. And so you can imagine the agony on this man to see his 85-year-old mom, who is weak and, and fragile anyway, to be tortured to death. And the mom told her, Son, yes, it will hurt for a while, but I'll be with my Savior. Stay strong, my son, stay strong. And this is what many people in North Korea, Saudi Arabia, and other countries, this is what they endure. They expect hardships, and they welcome these hardships into their lives. Don't see them as intruders, but see them as friends. How many times, though, are we like the children of Israel in adversity? We worry. We're fearful. We cry out to God. But you notice, it's all about me. It's all about me. Poor me. Look what I'm going through. When we do that, we're saying two things, either two things. When we're worried or when we're fearful, we're saying two things. We're either saying, God, you don't care for me, or we're saying that, God, you're not power, powerful enough to get me through these. These are the only two options. Now, we'll never admit it, but these are the only two options that I see 
that when we encounter hardships and we start to worry and we start to fret and, and we continue to dwell on it, we're saying, God, you don't care. But the God who sent Jesus Christ so that we could have our relationship with God once again, you don't care or you're not powerful enough. The God who created the world with a voice doesn't care. But you see how absurd it gets when we're going through crisis. We make these accusations against God. You don't care or you're not powerful enough. What's the solution? What's the solution when we're in limbo? What's the solution when we go through hardships? Verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he accomplished for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall not ever see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you should hold your peace. God said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Psalms 46.10, it says, Be still and know that I am the Lord. In the NAS version, it says, Cease striving. The idea of this is like a military um, platoon, and they're standing at attention. They're looking ahead. They're not looking around. They're not looking above. They're looking straight for their commander. What is my next command? And the Bible says that this is what we should be like. But our response is, God, God, do something now. Act for me. Interact. Intervene. Now, now, now. And God many times says, stand still and wait. And wait patiently. During these times of when we have to wait or hardships come, we need to claim God's promises. Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. That is the foundation for whatever comes into our lives. God is our refuge and strength. In verse 2, it looks like the author of um, Psalms 46 thinks, okay, now what could the worst case scenario be? What could the worst thing that happen in our lives to test this foundation here? And the author says, though the earth melt, though it is in chaos, though its mountains are dissolving all around us, I will not fear because God is my refuge and strength. Isaiah 41.10, the Amplified, it says, Fear not, there's nothing to fear, for I am with you. Do not look around in dismay and terror, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and harden you to difficulties. Yes, I will help you with my victorious right hand. I like the, the, uh, the phrase, harden you to difficulties. Now, what would happen if I pound that? Wake you up. It didn't phase. It didn't phase the pulpit. And I could pound on it as much as I want, but it will not phase it. Because the, the pulpit is hardened to my fist. Now, if I was to hit somebody with my fist, it'd do a little damage. But what this is saying, God is saying, I'm going to harden you to difficulties. That they will not phase you. Yes, it will hurt. Yes, there, there will be times of pain. 
but it will not phase you. You can continue your walk with me because I've hardened you to difficulties. Psalms 43.10. But now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, they shall not, you shall not be burned, nor the flame consume you. I like that first verse, first part here. It says, you are mine. Do you ever sit and comprehend that? That God is telling each one of us as his children, you are mine. Oftentimes in our crisis, we think God has abandoned us. But he's, he's telling us, you are mine. And I will go with you. I'll go with you through the floods, through the waters. I will be there. You are mine. When I was first grade, I remember coming home from school one time. And another, my parents weren't there. There was a mix-up, and one of them thought the other one was going to be there. And I came home. Which was okay, but really got bad, a storm came. Thunder, lightning, and I was petrified. So I called one of my parents, and they, they got home and apologized. But do you know what happened when my dad got home? I was okay. The storm was still raging, thunder and lightning, but because my daddy was there, it was okay. I wasn't worried. I wasn't concerned about something that terrified me five minutes earlier. It's the same way with God and us. He's saying, child, you are mine, and when you go through all these things, I will be with you. I will go through the waters, the floods. I won't tell you how long it's going to be, but I am with you. You are mine. And if these thoughts get embedded in us, Maybe we'll have better attitudes through hardships when God is saying, you are mine, and I will go with you. Oftentimes we say, God, get rid of this. I don't want to go through it. God says, we're going through, child, but I will be with you. There's a song that I grew up singing. Like a river glorious, hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand, Never folk and follow, never traitor stand. Not a surge of worry, not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry, touch the spirit there. Stayed upon Jehovah, the Bible is saying. As long as I'm stayed upon Jehovah, God will get me through whatever comes my way. Oswald Chambers had a motto. It said, trust God and do the next thing. Trust God and do the next thing. He was coming home from Egypt. This is during the First World, First World War. He was a chaplain down in Egypt to the um, British. And he was coming home, and he thought he had a house set up for him to live. He found out in the Suez Canal that the house was taken. Someone else had it. And so, but he stayed true to his motto. He continued to do what he was instructed to do, to minister to the soldiers. Why? Because he trusted God when he got home there would be a house. 
Trust God and do the next thing. Do we do that? Trust God. If he calls us to teach, then continue to teach. If he calls us to be parents, continue to parent. Continue to do what you've been called to, but during this time, trust God and do the next thing. An example of trust might be a tightrope walker. Put up a, a sign that says, I'll be walking across this canyon. Come and see me. And he got quite a crowd of people to see this miraculous feat of walking across on this little um, rope or wire. And so people came to watch him. And so he asked these people when they came, do you believe that I could walk across? Everybody raised their hand. Of course, we've heard about you. We've seen it. And he said, how many people believe that I could put someone on my shoulders and walk across? Oh, I don't know. I'm, but people thought, well, if he couldn't do it, he wouldn't have asked. So well, some people raised their hand. And he says, any volunteers? One person volunteered. Only one person truly believed. It's the same in our walk with Christ. We could say, I trust you, God. I trust you. And we sing these great songs. But when we go through these adversities, are we the one that says, okay, God, if you want me on your shoulders, I believe you. Trust God and do the next thing. In Job 42.10, we have something else that we could do during these hardships. This here I read years ago in um, Oswald Chambers, my utmost force highest. June 20th. If you're not getting the hundredfold more, not getting insight in God's word, then start praying for your friends entering the ministry of the interior. interior. The verse says, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Oftentimes when, we, when we're going through the crisis, it's all about me. It's, all, it's about me. God, get me out of here. It hurts, God. But Job 42.10 says that God turned the... God, um, gave Job the healing that, that he was seeking when he prayed for his friends. Now, this is not an idea of God bless Johnny, God bless Sally, God bless Sue, God bless Tom, God bless my dog, God bless my cat, God bless the president. Now, God, give me what I want. Okay? This is to earnestly get it off ourselves and on to other people, because that is what we're told to do, to pray for others. I've tried this, and it is hard. It is really hard to earnestly pray for other people when I'm so engulfed in my self-pity, look at what's happening to me. But Job 42.10 says, God turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. So that's been a challenge for me, a new challenge. It's when I'm going through these times, can I honestly get it off of me and onto other people who also need the intercession? We need to be careful that we don't see the salvation of the Lord as God give, giving me what I want. Okay, God, I'm in a predicament. 
I'm going to stand still and wait for your salvation. And by the way, God, this here has to be the way it works. This here has to be your salvation. The story told of a woman who, who prayed, God, I want to marry a rich man. And someone said, what happens if God leads a poor man in your life? Well, God will never do that because he loves me. This woman's idea is a salvation of the Lord would be a rich man. Not necessarily. Hebrews 11, which is called the Faith Hall of Fame. It talks about miraculous things that are done. People raised from the dead. People healed. And God really intervening. People seeing the salvation of the Lord. But you continue down that passage. What do you get? People running People being yanked out of their houses. People being killed, being separated, being tortured. And you say, that's in the same chapter as other people of faith? So we need to be careful that we do not view the salvation of the Lord as the God has to give me what I want. Acts chapter 12, we see James killed. James, part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, was killed. And then we see Peter released from prison. So we could jump to the conclusions if you want. Peter saw the salvation of the Lord. But maybe James did. Just maybe the salvation of the Lord is not what we always envision. What would happen if you, if your kid, and, and, and I work with kids like this, who think that the more that I get, the more parent, my parents love me. If my parents only give me a dollar gift, they don't love me. But if I get a new uh, bicycle or a new Xbox, then mom and dad really, really love me, and they honestly believe that. But we could get like that with God. God, you fixed this for me, and that's the salvation of the Lord. But if it doesn't go my way, God... Um, what happened? Don't you love me? Don't you care for me? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God will intervene in our lives at the right time, at the right place. And it may not be what we want right now, but it's for his kingdom and his glory. You may say, well, this seems so hard. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. One thing about preaching up here, there's... <laughs> You, you feel like a hypocrite. You really do. Because it, um, it's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. It is hard. It is hard to be joyful. It is hard to wait. It is hard not to think that God has abandoned me when I go through my trials and tribulations. But I like Genesis 29, 20. It talks about Jacob and Rachel. Jacob had to work seven years, and then it became 14 years for Rachel. Had to work for her. Had to do duty for Laban, her um, father, and he was a schemer and a, and a shyster. So he had to work seven years. Seven years. That goes back to 2011. Had to work that long for his wife, Rachel. But it says in 2920, but seemed like several days due to his love for her. 
It didn't seem like seven years. It seemed like several days because of his love for her. Maybe if our love for God is as we claim it is, Maybe when we go through our trials and tribulations, it will be easier to bear because we know we're doing it for a loved one. We're doing it for one who loved me so much that Jesus came and died. That is who we're doing it for. There's a song that I grew up singing, well, with the congregation, of course. It says, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. What would happen when we're going through our trials? Instead of us complaining, we would cry out, more love to thee, O God, more love to thee. Back Years ago, probably back in the 50s and 60s, there's a village in North Korea that 27 people were living underground because, you know, um, you're, if you were a Christian, that would almost mean life imprisonment or, or death. And so uh, 23 adults and four children were living under, under, underground. And the city widened their streets and they discovered the catacomb where they were living and brought these 27 people out. And they put the four kids in a noose and told their parents, give up your faith or you'll watch your kids die right before you. They stayed true. Can't imagine the agony. But they knew this could happen. And then the rest of them, they put down on the center boulevard and got a steamroller. And the steamroller came, and they knew what was going to happen. They were going to be squashed. And there wasn't a lot of yelling and screaming, and I rebuke you, Satans. What these North Korean Christians sang, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. This is my earnest plea, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. And a steamroller came, and it only... Um, steamrolled half of them. I mean, it steamrolled only half of them. And then it came back around. And as long as that last person had breath, they sang, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. And that right there should be our song. That should be our motto when we're going through these hardships. When God has us at Paya Hyroth, and he says, wait. And he says, stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. And sometimes the salvation of the Lord is not what we imagine. But whatever God ordains, whatever he brings to our lives, may we sing, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to these. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This will be the parting cry. Still all my prayer should be, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. It's hard. It's hard. And it's so easy when we're going through these trials to look around and say, God, I got it rough. But, but look at her. She's got it easy. Look at him. His life's pretty easy. This is not fair, God. In John 21, we have a very interesting story. Peter t I mean, Jesus told Peter, 
what type of death he was going to die. He's going to be crucified. And Peter turns around and points at John and says, well, what about John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says these words, mind your business, follow me. And that should also be our, our motto, our practice, that we're going through hardships, so we have to wait. We can easily look around at people who have it better, so we think. And Jesus says to each one of us, his children, mind your business and follow me. The song that we sang quite often says, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. This is a man who lost his business and lost his four daughters. And he was able to pen this glorious song. So may that be also be our prayer, our motto, that whatever my lot, whatever God has allowed to come to my life, God, you've taught me to say. You see the word taught? That means we don't know how to do it. It doesn't come natural. But God, you've taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Definitely easier said than done. And when we come to these places in our lives, it's okay to say, God, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with worry. I'm struggling with fear. Please help me. And may we practice some of the solutions that God gives to us. Cling to his promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are mine. May we sing the song, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee, and actually mean it. Not just a song that we sing out of habit or because we know it. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. And may we faithfully cling to God's promise. If things don't work out the way that we envision, may we still have enough love and trust in our Savior that says, if this is what you ordain, God, I'm ready to go. Please help me. Father, we come before you today. It's hard. It's hard to practice these things because we've got into many, many bad habits, many bad and sinful habits, and we justify them. We just say, well, that's just us being us or me being me. But Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would really, really convict us of when we worry, when we fret, may it never be justified as being normal. But may we look to you in our hardships. May we look to you when we have to wait and help us to wait patiently and help us to really believe that we are yours. May we, may we hear that voice, you are mine, when we go through the waters, the trials and tribulations, the floods. Father, give us the courage to trust you. And may our song be more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. In Christ's name, amen.